<laughs> Greetings, citizens. You're now trapped in a nerd cage with your hosts, Mark and Jay. We hope you have a smashing good time. <laughs> Hello and welcome. That's right, you're trapped in nerd cage live this ain't just a reaction show but a debate show and a live discussion on everything that makes people like you and i tick so thank you for joining us tonight uh please hit that like button and subscribe i'm your co-host jay saint g coming to you live from syracuse new york and always with me my man the warrior from wakanda the fiend from louisville mark withers what's shaking boss hey what's going on man super excited to be here and yes the moment is here I have been chomping at the bit to talk about this. This is a moment that is 40 years in the making. Now, tonight's look back is going to focus on Superman 2. Now, there are two versions of this movie. There's the theatrical version uh, that was directed by uh, Richard Lester. And then there is the uh, now famous Donner Cut, which uh, is basically 75% of his directorial footage along with uh, outtakes and screen tests and everything like that. So I'm- 25 years later too. Right, right, years later. So I'm really excited to talk about this. I wanted to see how you felt about it, Jay. Oh man, so I'm gonna say this right now that doesn't matter which version of this movie you watch, this is still very much the best Superman movie of the early era, basically Superman one through four and Superman Returns. Superman 2 is, in my opinion, by far the best one and probably the more controversial one. On top of that, um, again, like you just mentioned, there's two different versions. But let me tell you something. These movies still hold up in my book, and it was a great rewatch. And I'm not going to lie to you. This was my first time watching the Donner Cut version of the film. What did you think about it? I, whew. It was fascinating. This may have been one of the more fascinating watches I've ever had because, I mean, we all hear about the Snyder Cut. We all hear about the final cut of Blade Runner. We all hear about the um, the Apocalypse Now director's cut. But, man, this may be, like I said, the most fascinating director's cut of a movie I've ever seen. And there's a lot of stuff I love about it. There, are, I have a couple of nitpicks, but, again... Oh my god! Any, any it, anyone who hasn't seen it needs to watch this version. Um, but again, I like both versions. But I, I have to say that I liked it. I preferred the Donner cut. Yeah, I'm kind of on the fence about uh, both versions. So there are things that I really enjoy about the theatrical version, the Lester version. Um, mainly because that's the one that I'm most familiar with from my childhood. Yeah. So all the scenes that uh, pop out to me are Richard Lester's work. Um, but the Donner Cut, which I wound up seeing years later, at, you know, when it was released in, I believe, 2006, yep. um, that had some scenes in it that would have really made the movie so much better. And, yeah. and and uh, give it some, give it more weight, give it more verisimilitude, if you will. And so yeah. there are some parts of the Donner cut that I don't like, that I mm -hmm. where I prefer Lester's version. And then there there are parts of the Donner cut that yes. I really felt could have 
really improved Lester's version. So yeah, they same found here. A way to sort I can't of wait to go into together. it. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of uh, behind the scenes uh, drama involved with this with this movie. And we can get into some of that. Um, I think the important thing to to note first right off the bat is that um, the sequel, you know, in most cases, you have, you know, your 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 uh, original movie, your heart, your part one, and then the yeah. sequel is filmed subsequently after some time after. In this case, um, Alexander and Ilya Salkine, the executive producers, wanted uh, initially for Superman one and Superman two to to be one film. Mm -hmm. So originally it was supposed to be three hours long, three and a half hours long. They wanted it to be this grand epic. And in the middle of filming, they realized that it was a little too ambitious to try to do that. So a decision was made to split those movies into two parts. And uh, Richard Donner had uh, done about 75% of Superman 2 before... Yes really like dug into the first movie. And so a lot of the, the you know, that's why the, you know, a lot of the, the, the color palette looks the way that it does. Um, there's some very noticeable uh, scenes in Superman 2 where, you know, the the main characters are different weights where they, they're- Yup, there's, that's the hair. That's what I was gonna say. The right. one thing that bothers me in both versions of this movie is Lex Luthor, he gets out of prison. He's bald. Right. And then when he appears at the White House in front of General Zod, he's got a full flat of hair right there. And I'm just like, well, how much time passed by? <laughs> that's, that's my one, my one of my main nitpicks. And again, this is a nitpick. The movie's still fantastic. Right. And again, you know what? We, we talk about Godfather 2 may be the best sequel of all time. We hear Empire Strikes Back's. Why isn't people talking about Superman 2? I feel like Superman 2 may be close up there with the best sequel of all time. Right, and that's that's something that I was going to mention. I, I think for me, and, it, and I may be biased because I'm a Superman fan, and I, you know this movie was imprinted on me literally when I first saw it. I was like nine years old. Uh, and then I, I've continued to rewatch it over and over you know, through the years. Um, but in my mind, this is the seminal comic book movie this is this is like the quintessential comic book film you know yeah. mainly because you know they this is the first real attempt at like trying to adapt a comic without making too many um too many adjust too many adjustments or trying to make it so ridiculous or so campy kind of like how we saw like the batman tv series kind of depart from the comic and yeah. so so for that reason, I, I think it's it's got to be up there, and I'm not really I'm like you I'm not really sure why it's you know why it's more overlooked than uh, some other comic book movies or even some you know epic films from the '80s. Absolutely. Um, now let me ask you something. I mean, we're, let's talk about Richard Donner for a second. Um, I absolutely love The Omen, but. At the time, of course, you know, I was born way long after. You know, I was born in the mid-80s. So, like, I have to ask you from your perspective. Um, Don Richard Donner was famous for The Omen, and The Omen right. is, a, is an epic horror movie. Still holds up, by the way. But how do you go from The Omen to Superman? Well, it, I mean, 
there's a there's a really interesting story behind that and i'm glad that you brought that up because i did want to talk a little bit about that director search so at the time that um that the salkine uh family acquired the rights to do superman this was like maybe 1976 1977 um there were a lot of and a lot of directors threw their hat in the ring. And there are two that I wanna mention that you'll never, like when I read this, I, it blew me away. So one of, one of there was a, a, a young director that approached them that was very interested in, in doing this movie. He was literally chomping at the bit to do it. And, uh, and uh, Ilya, the, the, the son, uh, approached his father Alexander and said look there's this guy he I really like his work I think that I think that he might be really good for this project and his father who was familiar with his work said well let's just wait and see how his little fish movie turns out that fish movie turned out to be Jaws and Jaws turned out to be a huge hit so that director was Steven Spielberg Arguably Man, one of the greatest wonder, directors bro. of all time was almost the director for Superman. Wow. And, and he was he was vetoed by the older uh, Salkind. And by the time uh, Spielberg, you know, by the time uh, Jaws had become the big hit that it was, and, you know, by the time he basically became a household name, the Salkinds actually really wanted him by that time. But his his fee, his his fee to direct a film had skyrocketed. It had gone like oh. way up. So they were like, now like you're out of our range. Another director that wanted to do it was George Lucas. And George Lucas approached Salkinds, kind of got the same treatment. They came back to him sometime later, but by that time he was already working on Star Wars. And so he couldn't do it. Um, they they approached a number of, of famous directors who all almost all of them turned it down and then eventually they got to richard donner who who was interested in it he had this vision for it that you know he wanted to as long as he had basically the 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 caveat was that he wanted to have control he wanted to be able to control the project he had a a a big epic vision for it and he wanted to bring uh, a, a level of realness and a level of verisimilitude to the character and not have it be a really like uh, campy comic book type of project. And so that's why they went with him initially. Now, how did they find Christopher Reeve? Because he was, now if I recall, he was an unknown, he was a redhead and he was only 150 pounds, correct? Yes, yes. So Christopher Reeves, um, it, it, this, is, this is a really interesting story too. So. Christopher Reeve uh, went to Juilliard with a number of actors that went on to become very famous, like William Hurt, Robin Williams, um, Treat Williams, a bunch of different actors, right? And there was, and they were, and they all kind of hung out, to, not hung out together, but like they all kind of like really knew each other and they talked about auditions that were going on. One of his friends was auditioning for the role of Jimmy Olsen and mentioned to him like, hey, there's the Superman project that's going on. I'm gonna go out for Jimmy Olsen. So uh, I think Christopher Reeve mentioned this to his agent. His agent uh, sent over headshots to uh, the, one of the producers, uh, actually the casting director 
Um, and the casting director gave his headshot to the Salkinds who promptly threw it in the trash like multiple times. Like he kept giving it to him. He's like, hey, I've, I've seen this guy. I've seen this guy's work. I think that, you know, he's kind of worthy of an audition. And they just looked at his headshot like, no, he's not right for this. And wow. he just dismissed him several times. Well, ultimately he did get that audition and he impressed them so much that they flew him out to uh, London to do a series of screen tests. Right at the time, he was he was doing a uh, he was doing a play on Broadway, and he wasn't willing to give the play up. Yeah. So um, he would fly back and forth between London and New York in order to do these screen tests. And in the middle of one of the not in the middle of one of the screen tests, but like towards the end of one of the screen tests, the guy that was driving him around told him, uh, "I'm not really supposed to tell you this, but the part's yours if you want." And wow. that's how that's how he got the part. And then how did they now how did they make that transformation? I mean, they 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 he was 150 pounds. I mean, right. you watch this movie clearly. I mean, he's not big like Henry Cable was, but he's still a lot bigger than 150 pounds. Yeah, um, he had a personal trainer that he worked with for about eight weeks. Um, he drastically changed his diet. Um, just constantly ate. There's actually a video on YouTube, which is like an old interview. And it actually shows his like workout regimen for the movie. And he, you know, and there's some, there's some parts in that where he kind of discusses his diet, um, things that he did to kind of pack on weight. And um, that transformation was progressive. So it was like, he didn't get like a certain size and then they started filming. Like he was like a certain size. They started filming. And then as the film progressed, he got bigger and bigger and bigger, which is why in certain scenes, if you really look carefully, when he's got the costume on, he does look thinner than other times. Yeah. Where he's like bulkier and more more cut. Particularly like most notably, there's a scene in Superman 2 where he flies off like after he's brought Lois to the Fortress of Solitude and he's like, sky's the limit tonight. And he flies to some place to go pick her some exotic flowers. In that scene, like you can tell in the suit, like you can see like the definition in his arms and his legs. And yeah. then in other scenes, the, that definition's not there. And that was because they filmed a lot of that stuff out of sequence. And he wasn't quite as fit in those scenes as he was in, in that particular scene there. Okay, wow. Man, that's why I'm saying you are the human <laughs> Superman encyclopedia. That's why I was- I tried. I was so, I was so <laughs> ready for this. I was ready to you to, to spit these facts out. So. <laughs> All right, so here's the thing. So Superman 2. I absolutely love the fact what what makes this movie better than the first one, both versions, is that this time there is a legitimate threat to Superman. Right. Not just one, but three Kryptonians fresh off the Phantom Zone prison. Right. And you are scared for not just Superman, but for everybody, because the first thing they do, I mean, besides their attack on that that country bumpkin town, they go to the White House. Right. And the first thing they do is they demand the kneel before Zod, the, the most famous comic book line ever, kneel before right. Zod. And it just, it's just, it's just, oh man. 
the the intensity is there and it just none of the other superman i mean we're not gonna count man so i'm just gonna talk about the the, the first five movies that there were none of the other movies present that that threat and that's what makes this movie so special is that there is a there's a legitimate threat for the whole movie and you feel for superman you feel for the country you fear for everybody at stake and then lex luther just throws in a wrench into there on top of that and that and this is just a, a recipe for a great movie and a great epic and then to add on top of that something that many other movies shamelessly ripped off especially spider-man 2 is superman gives up his powers right it may be brief but it was a powerful scene it really was and yeah that's and why, to me this is the best right and i agree you know specifically with what you just said so you know um part of what makes this this movie so interesting a, a big part is that it brings up that question you know what what would it be like if you had a world with superman in it and the world had come to rely on him and superman decides to give up his powers you know like what happens to the world then you know like in in and i think this was a, a brilliant way to ask that question it's it's uh reminiscent of some of the silver age comics like the silver age action comics where they would have like these kind they would pose these weird kind of questions you know like so uh you know i really enjoyed it like for that for that reason and uh you know i thought that christopher reeve particularly um you know, did a good job of of bringing that across in his performance, right? Because, you know, even when he's like, you know, like when we think of like the Superman character, we think of like the dichotomy between Superman and Clark Kent, like when he has his glasses on. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that that Christopher Reeve was able to figure out was that that the Clark Kent thing is just a total disguise. And so when people aren't looking, even though he has the glasses on, he's still Superman. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's still at like when, like you notice it in certain scenes, like when he's with Lois and he's like, before she finds out his identity, he's kind of like playing like the goofy, like silly, yep. you know, kind of this character. But then when she turns her back, even though she's in the same room, then you see him stand up straight and his face changes and stuff, even when he yeah. has the glasses on. So it was interesting to see him with no powers be Clark Kent without pretending to be Clark Kent. And I thought that was a really brilliant performance that like maybe I hadn't considered that when I was younger, but as I get older and I start to watch, you know, these performances more closely, like I notice little little nuances like that. And it just makes me respect Christopher Reeves so much. Like he was just so good at what he did. Yes, absolutely. And now <laughs> I got to talk about this scene, but the the diner scene. Right. Okay. He was he knew his powers was gone. Right. <laughs> what made him think he could defend defend himself to that truck driver or whatever? Like like wait a minute. You knew you gave up your powers, so like why are you trying why are you why are you just trying to start a fight? Why why did you initiate that fight? You know, why did you tell him to step outside? Why didn't you just back up? I mean, what do, you, what do you got to say about that, Mark? Right. And I thought about that too. But then I thought, well, this is a guy who's been invulnerable his entire life, right? And on the very first night of his vulnerability, um, he doesn't realize like what he's in for. 
he doesn't really understand the stakes because he's yeah. been able to stand in front of bullets. He's had people punch him in the face before. He doesn't know what pain is. He doesn't know what, you know, he's never bled before. Like when the guy actually like knocks him to the ground and he goes into the, falls into the glass or whatever, he's yeah. like marveling at his own blood. He's like, oh my yeah. God, you know what I mean? Like, so I, I attribute, I attribute that to him not really understanding the stakes and not really realizing that he's going to actually get hurt. Plus, I think that like, you know, there there was an overconfidence, right? Because he never before that, he never actually had to really like know how to fight, you know? Yeah. So, so, you know, for someone who's like never been in a real fight before where you actually have to have skills, like I could see that um that overconfidence happening, you know what I mean? Like if you've never had if you've never had your butt kicked, you you don't really know what to expect. <laughs> <laughs> and now let's 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 shift gears to the villains. Mm -hmm. Um the, the one thing I love about this is again, we have three great villains. Well, four if you include Luther, but I love when they first arrived on Earth after the moon scene. Right. And he, he goes Zod goes into the to the pond there. And he's fascinated by what Earth is, you know, you know, and sees that there's a yellow sun, this, this, and that. And then he floats up and starts walking on the pond, and that bystanders is like shocked, like, "What did I just see?" That's right. one of the most entertaining scenes where they're they're learning how to use their powers. And oh, I do got a nitpick in that same scene. Um, the I'm sorry, who who was, what was the name of the female Kryptonian there? Ursa. Um, okay, she gets bitten by a snake. Right. How was the snake able to like penetrate her skin? And she's like, "Ow!" Like, what? So she's a Kryptonian. Wouldn't she like not feel the snake? Wouldn't the snake just like, like you know, break its jaw on on her? And then, then of course, she zaps it. But like, right. But like, but, I was just being, like, how did the snake was able to to hurt her? And then she reacted. And I've always had two separate theories about that. So okay. my first theory is. Like they mentioned this a lot in like the comics and in certain like Superman cartoons, certain versions of the cartoon, the, 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 um, the, the full strength of, of Superman's powers didn't just kind of happen because he immediately came into Earth's atmosphere. Like it took time for him to absorb this yellow sun energy. And so since they're, they, since they've just gotten out of the Phantom Zone and they've just arrived on Earth, they're still their powers are still manifesting but they're not quite there and so that's why like that's one one reason i think that a snake could actually bite her and penetrate her skin because she yeah. probably wasn't at full strength yet the second theory that i have is that the snake didn't penetrate her skin it just scared her like she was just like it's a creature she's never seen before and it yeah. attacks her it's like whoa and she just throws it down real fast you know because you don't see any blood they never show a wound or anything like that so that's also possible but okay now listen it's hard it's hard not to mention man of steel in this conversation but i feel like that's one thing one thing that man of steel explained better mm -hmm. was you know when when henry cable's superman was just like you know i've already learned to control harness my power and control and deal with it exactly and then zod's like freaking out like you know he can't he's hearing everything he can't he keeps seeing his x-ray vision like i feel like 
And that's what one thing Man Steel did. One of many things Man Steel did excellent was they explained the whole the Kryptonian adjustment on Earth much yeah. better in that movie than they did in this movie. Right, but, and if you and, right, and if you notice in Man of Steel, like Clark doesn't really his powers don't manifest as like when he's an infant. Like yeah. like they start all this stuff starts to happen to him like during puberty like when yeah, he's kind of like, like in smallville basically. yeah like it just like slowly starts to build on him so i think you're right like they did a much better job of explaining it as opposed to like the original superman where he's like a toddler and he's like lifting up <laughs> lifting yeah. up a truck so he ought to, he already has like all his abilities and stuff like that so you're right like they didn't really like explain that very well and i don't know that they necessarily had a plan it could have just been like a goof in the writing that like nobody thought about like oh well, yeah you know <laughs> well keep in mind we've had years of superman comics and film and other versions since superman 2 and you know i'm sure i mean this is still i mean before these movies i mean what george reeves was what 20 30 years before that right so, 1950s yeah so mm -hmm. basically like there's been you, you can nitpick this movie because you know there's been so much more you know much more superman material since then right so i'm looking at looking at that part like well hey wait a second now now we got to talk about the uh the other kryptonian there um now forgive me he was a boxer wasn't he uh you're talking about the the actor that played non jack o'halloran yeah. yes i think so yeah he was um, a boxer. I know yeah, yeah, I, I wasn't familiar with that fact. I know that he had been in some other stuff like before, before, um, you know, like he had, he had acted in other stuff before Superman 2, but I didn't really know much about his history. That's interesting that he was a boxer before that. Yeah, here's the beauty of Amazon Prime. Pause the movie, <laughs> see who's on screen, and all the information comes up about the actors on screen. I, I it's a handy little feature if anyone has got Amazon Prime. That's what I, I paused it, and then there it was, you know, like, yeah, a former heavyweight boxer fought so and so, so and so in the 1960s. I'm like, oh, wow, okay. So that's where they, so that's what makes sense why they had him as the, you know, the, the, the big brute of the group, you know? Right, right. So speaking of big brutes, I, I forgot to mention this. When we talked about uh, Christopher Reeve's training regimen, yeah. um, the, the, uh, the, the personal trainer that he hired is David Prowse, who I know that that's probably not a, not a name that, that um, rings any bells for you because you're not a Star Wars fan, but David Prowse was the person uh, who played Darth Vader. Like James Earl Jones did the voice, the voice yeah. but David Prowse was the actor who was actually in the costume. So he was he was the um, he was the person who trained uh, Christopher Reeve and got him into shape for the movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow, great. Another great fun fact is Mark spitting them facts out, man. <laughs> I'm trying to remember them all. I'm like, man, like there's a there's a bunch of stuff I learned like a long time ago, and I'm trying to like remember, trying to trying to spit as many things as I can come up with. Yeah. Now another great thing too. Uh, again, the parallels of Man of Steel. It's, it's inevitable to talk about, but I'm a huge fan of epic, destructive scenes. That's why I'm a Toho fan. But man, that scene, the, the well, it's obviously New York City, but the the Battle of Metropolis. And Superman 2 still holds up, man. Cars flying everywhere. The Coca-Cola sign getting destroyed. Like, oh my God. That fight still holds up because it's just nonstop action. Cars flying everywhere, the bus sliding across 
Superman pushing the bus. Like, oh my god, it's just... Mm. I love that fight scene. Me too. And, you know, the fact that it's it's practical effects. Yes. Like, you know, they didn't have CGI back then. And so to see these things, like, you know, you see Superman fly into like the side of a Coca-Cola truck. You see these explosions. You see like people like like uh, skating backwards, <laughs> like, yep. you know, because, of, you know, because of Zod's like super breath and like things yep. like that. Like, you know, it, it these were these were amazing effects for 1978, 1979, you know, and to see that must them have been the majority of the budget. Must yeah, have that had that had to have been. Um, I know they went over budget a couple of times and the Salkinds actually had to go uh, to the parent company and, and uh, negotiate a new deal, um, I think, for the European rights um, and for the television rights in order to get more money for the movie. And the funny, um, it's funny you mention that the um, doing my research. This movie was released in Europe yes. and in Australia before America, which yeah, is why was, this, is, this is why we're doing the 40th anniversary now, because the American release didn't come until 1981. Correct. But the, the original release in Europe and, and Australia was actually 1980. Yeah. They initially wanted to do a simultaneous release, but for whatever reason, they couldn't get that worked out. And so they released it in Europe first, then Asia, then uh, I think... Uh, maybe South Africa, like some, they, they released it in a bunch of different places first. And then the United States got it last of all places. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, we got it. Right. We got it. Well, actually even the UK, they, uh, it was released in the UK in the, in 1981, I think on Easter of 1981. And then we got it that subsequent summer, like in July. Okay. Now I got now going back to the, the, uh, the battle of Metropolis there. There's one thing that really bothers me. Please explain it to me if, if maybe I missed something. But why? Why does Superman just just fl fled? Why did he flee the, the battle? He was trying to get them to chase him to the fortress. He was trying to lead them there. But he, he didn't say anything to him. He just fled. And he so he was just assuming that they were just going to show up at the Fortress of Solitude? Yeah, I take it. I take it as like he was kind of hoping because he, you know, he could clearly see that they were using the citizens to to get him off guard they figured out that like okay he cares for these humans so we're gonna we're gonna do as much damage and hurt as many of them and so in order in order to protect them he tried to take the battle away from them like you know like you know he, he was hoping that they would just chase him to wherever he was going I don't know. It almost felt like that. Not only that he like fled the battle, but he abandoned all those people. Like, right. and that's they? how they took it, right? Like, you you see the you see the citizens of Metropolis go like, "Don't leave us!" Yeah. You know, and then and then and then the two little kids like, "Man, Superman didn't do nothing." <laughs> I just found it so off-putting. Like, I, I I hear all these criticisms about Man of Steel, but like, wait a minute, go back to Superman too. Like, he he straight up abandoned them. Like, yeah. Like, and you know what I found funny too? Um <laughs> spit it out. So when I, I have to say it, but so when the so the so when they go to the so the four of them go to the Fortress of Solitude, I mean mm -hmm. the, the Kryptonians, Lex and Lois. Right. Lex Luthor was riding on <laughs> 
Oh on no, what's Zod's uh, Nan's back? He's riding on yeah. Nan's back. Yeah. Yeah, the whole time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sly dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I, yeah. I, I Lex Luthor. He 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 planned that on purpose. He want he wanted to be carried by her. Who wouldn't? But I'm just saying, like, <laughs> <laughs> I just found it funny. Like, I see you, Lex. Mm-hmm. Okay, we gotta talk about Gene Hackman. I feel like we've been totally ignoring Gene Hackman. I right. I, I, I really like this version of Lex. I know it's a very goofy, but, but it is Lex Luthor. Like he's he only cares about himself. Right. And he's always looking out for his best interest. And, um, I really like the fact that uh, he's always looking out for himself. He you know he goes into the White House saying, you know what. I really like beaches. I would love to have Australia. <laughs> right. And, you know, throw Cuba on top of that. Like, I... <laughs> and then, of course, at the end, at the Portrait of Solitude, you know, he portrays Superman, which Superman, you know, he was prepared for Expected that. Expected it, yeah. And, and then, of course, and then finally, after um, the, 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 the Cotronians are stopped, he's like, hey, I was with you the whole time. I, I went with the plan. <laughs> just like, it's just, it's just so funny. Gene Hackman's performance is great because it's just that he's just that that sly devil. You know, he's always playing the best cards. And I, I mean, trust me, I know we have. I still feel like to this day we haven't got a true Lex Luthor. Right. But I I do enjoy this version. I really like that he's always he's looking out for himself and he's gonna go with the best whoever's got the best hands. You know, I right. So right. I, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting to note too that. Um, I think it's important to note that that Gene Hackman was not uh, the first choice to play Lex Luthor. Um, there were a couple of actors that were offered it first. Um, the first one, I believe, was Paul Newman. Um, really? Yeah. Like, if I remember correctly, wow. it was yeah. Like they they wanted Paul Newman for that part. And then they, and then he turned it down numerous times. Like they, they kept trying to approach him. He's like, no. And then um, there were a couple of other famous actors from that time that they approached that um, that were just not interested in it, you know. And uh, when they got to Gene Hackman, he had just come off of the French Connection movies, and he was like a big, big star. And so yeah. he initially turned it down as well. But then he found out that Marlon Brando was attached to the project. Yep. And always wanted to work with Marlon. And he was the Marlon Brando was the first actor attached, correct? Right, correct. That was the first big star. That was the first big name that they that they got. And they used that to sort of draw in other stars. And so since Hackman wanted, really wanted to work in a movie with Marlon Brando, he was like, okay, I will do it on the condition that I don't have to shave my head. And so that's why this version of Lex, you see him with like, and they they explain that it's a wig. Like in the film, they explain that these are all a series of wigs. But um, that's why like you never really see him with a shaved head except for in prison. And that is like makeup. It's like a like a skin cap. That they used, he- yeah, yeah, prosthetic yeah. headpiece that they used for that part. Actually, it was pretty convincing, actually. Yeah, I mean, as a kid, I never knew that. You know, I watched it again recently, and then, like, 
after I found that information out, I kind of looked for it. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I can, I can kind of see. Well, that. I like that look better though. I mean, that's the Lex Luthor I know, the bald one. Like, so that's much what I'm better. Saying. Like, yeah. I, I, that's why I'm saying. Like, I feel like on on screen, we haven't gotten that true. Like, I'll tell you right now, going off topic a little bit. My pick for Lex Luthor is the obvious one, Brian Cranston. It was to me was always I like my it. ideal. Uh, Lex Luthor. That's just that's just me. I mean, I know I'm going off of Breaking Bad. And he was bald sure. in that for the most part, but I really think Brian Cranston would knock it out of the park if he right. was, if he was given the opportunity to, to right. play that role. Right, and and I agree. I mean, Brian Cranston is great in everything, and you know, there's no doubt that he would. You know, he we've seen him do good villains before. Excuse me, um, but um, my pick is uh, Billy Zane. Like I've always wanted to see him as Lex Luthor. He was in a, a an Amazon original show called Wild Dogs a few years ago, and he played like a, sort of like a like a rich tycoon that lived in Belize. He wasn't like a bad guy or anything like that. Like yeah. like that character, like the way that he sort of navigated wealth and the way that he kind of like that ease, that coolness, that like. Alex Luthor would have, plus he already has the look with the bald head and everything like that. I just think he'd be really good. Plus, we've seen Billy Zane be, uh, you know, the the bad guy and some stuff. You know, he was definitely not a nice guy in Titanic. And so, <laughs> you yeah. know, so I, I think that I, I've always like thought that he would be really like perfect for the part. Okay. Yeah. I have to, I have to concur with that. That's actually a really interesting choice here. Now, Again, I hate bringing up Man of Steel because it's not a Man of Steel look, but it's a Superman 2 look. But the parallels, no, we can always air the parallels are are, yeah. are there, and it's hard not to talk about. So right. let's let's go. Let's talk about the ending, the the, the, the showdown at the uh, Fortress of Solitude. So right. everybody was raging when Henry Cable snapped uh, Zod's neck. Right. But no one talks about <laughs> Superman and Lois and Superman t- killed all three of them. Right. Well, you're not take it back. No, one jump, one jumped to his right. dad. Killed himself. Yeah. Okay, Margot Kidder clocked that woman in the face. She falls to her death, and then, and then of course, uh, uh, Christopher Reeve crushes Zod's hand and then throws him down. Like, oh, right. that doesn't bother me. But like, why is everyone throwing a, a sissy fit about? Superman's snapping Zod's like, but no one's going to talk about the ending of Superman 2, how they all fall to their deaths. Right. I think I think mostly because, you know, the, the, the same people that have that complaint are probably people that don't really remember Superman 2. And maybe they don't, you know, maybe they haven't seen it or maybe they just don't remember that part. But I've always had an issue with that. Not so much with Superman, like, Throwing, uh, throwing Zod against the wall and then having him fall, but they never reconcile Lois killing somebody. Like <laughs> no one's just like, "Whoa, <laughs> like you just killed, you just killed that girl." Like it's just, it's all fine. Like it's no problem. And then she goes to work the next day, and it's like not an issue. But like, um, <laughs> and for years that has bothered me, right? But then um, I learned that. In Richard Donner's version, before he was let go, he had it written in where uh, the Kryptonians didn't die. They actually just oh. ended up at the bottom of the fortress and Superman retrieves them. And there's like a supposed to be a scene where 
the Snow Patrol comes comes through and collects them and Lex Luthor and takes them all to jail. But, oh. um, and I don't know if that scene was ever really filmed. I've never seen it. Yeah. Like it might be filmed, like it might be part of a deleted scene or it could just be something that was plotted out that just never got filmed. Yeah, yeah maybe they, the budget wasn't there. But here's the thing though, like you, you can, listen, there's two cases for it. You could argue saying, he had every right to kill them because of all the havoc that they caused. Right. And the other, on the other, on the other hand, they don't have their their powers. Like, right. You now that they're not a threat, now you can throw them in jail and they won't be able to get out because they don't. They're they're just regular human beings now. Right. So you got both sides of the argument, but um. So, but yeah, like I said, I just feel like it's something that no one like complains about like you complain about what henry cable did but you're not gonna complain what christopher reeve and martin kidder did like come on now right and that and that was and that was a key part of the like the discord between um between the salkines and um and uh and and richard donner um because that was something that he brought up he was like you know you can't have superman kill someone you can't have it even look like he killed somebody because part of the canon is that he just he doesn't kill like that's yeah. against his code, and so you have to you have to explain what happens to these people. Um, they didn't think it was important, and so after he was let go, they naturally didn't put that part in the film. And it turns out that they were right. It really wasn't important because nobody talks about it. Only yeah. like. Only like nerds like me like really think about it. <laughs> Lois Lane killed somebody and it was like not a big deal. <laughs> to be continued. Ooh, trying to get out of the nerd cage, are ya? Well, before you go, hit that subscribe button. And if you're really intrigued, ring that bell. Thank you for dropping by. Until next time, tell everyone you know about Nerdcage Live! Ah! <laughs> <laughs>